HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruzet.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. Welcome to the Food Scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode... When René Redzepi opened Noma in 2003, he couldn't have imagined that a small Copenhagen-based restaurant would send a ripple through the food world by way of Nordic cuisine. The same goes for what we've recently witnessed in the world of fermentation. An act of aging a piece of produce or protein, see chicken wing garum, is calculatedly manipulated and matured for maximum flavor through an ever-evolving relationship between microbes and humans. Or that's how David Zilber puts it. As head of Noma's fermentation lab, Zilbert tabulated his catalog of creation, now known as the Noma Guide to Fermentation, which documents the life choices of koji, kombuchas, shoyus, misos, vinegars, garums, lacto-ferments, and more, all which came to realization when somebody got drunk for the first time. Fermentation is the transformation of one ingredient into another uh, via a microbe. Um, and that happens all the time in the natural world. That's what we know as rotting when you see a squirrel smushed by a car tire on the side of the road. But uh, if a human decides to select what microbes get to thrive in the environment that is that ingredient, then you have fermentation. So that definition of fermentation um, asks another definition, which is microbes. Can you explain what those are? A microbe is a microorganism. Uh, that includes everything from protozoa to amoebas to fungi, bacteria, and archaea. So it is very much a blanket term. Um, going back in time, you could also call them animalcules, as uh, the famous Dutch natural historian, uh, Leeuwenhoek, I think, the inventor of the microscope, called them when he first peered into this world. Um, and that was an amazing discovery. It was, it was, you know, it's on par with peering into space and seeing the planets for the first time. Um, but there is this entire unseen world that comprises the majority of life on earth. Um, and there are a handful of those organisms that are very useful to humans in their ability to transform and preserve food. 
Now, the majority of those are single-celled, if not all that we're talking about. Some are single-celled. Um, these single-celled organisms are developing very complex things, at least in our lexicon of what cooking is. Um, can you cite some of the first examples of fermentation, both historically and personally? I mean, the very first examples of fermentation has to be fallen fruit. Fruit falls to the ground, ferments in their own juices, mammals eat them, get drunk. Um, for myself, the first time I remember a fermentation, that I, that fermentation truly impacted my life, was, a, was actually the first time I got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I was around 14 years old. I got way too drunk. And uh, of course, I had to hide it from my parents, and I was very sick and very drunk. And only years later did I realize that, you know, as we're dabbling into fermentation, that, wow, beers are fermentation too, you know? Uh, so those are my my uh, uh, first encounters with fermentation. Uh, I'd, I'd have to say in history, though, uh, outside of just, you know, f- uh, fermentation in the wild, um, some, of, some of the oldest uh, are definitely wine. Uh, very traditional wines that were made... Um, in the Caucasus Mountains, uh, going going into the Zargos Mountains of, of Iran, um, all through Georgia, but that is where you find some of the oldest artifacts um, associated with fermentation. Now, that's just artifacts. That's just proof. That's that's carbon dating and saying, oh, this clay urn is stained with wine. Uh, but just because you see the first marker doesn't mean it wasn't happening for millennia before that, intentionally. Scandinavia, first I want to know what you got drunk on. It was beer. <laughs> it was cheap beer, the cheapest uh, a 14-year-old and his friends could get their hands on. Fermentation is very parallel to a lot of things um, in that its life exists only after some other life exists. So if it's fallen fruit, the first is the fruit itself, and then it turns into this other object. Do you consider fermentation to be a secondary or tertiary thing, uh, subsidiary or its own thing completely? (laughs) Um, All all life is parasitic. You'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find some organism on earth that doesn't feed off of uh, the organic matter of some previously living organism. Um, it, in, in that respect, all life is a bit uh, opportunistic, you could say. Um, and then you kind of get into the idea of like, okay, well, what's the difference in between symbiosis and parasitism? And that is when you kind of are, are faced with an interesting question. Um, and the relationship in between humans and the microbes responsible for fermented products is definitely one where uh, both parties get some sort of beneficial um, boon. Uh, on both sides of the coin. So um, I, 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 I can't talk about it in, in terms of like a, a primary or secondary or tertiary process. It is, it is life living. Let's talk about where the two of you grew up and your first instances of fermentation, not necessarily just getting drunk. Um, Scandinavia is probably a little bit easier to find, but Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> what ferments in Toronto? What ferments in Toronto? Hmm. Um, let me just think about what I had in the fridge. Uh, an Ashkenazi uh, Polish Jew. Uh, that was my father. A Caribbean mom with an Afro. That, that's, uh, that's the other half. Uh, so I definitely had an interesting mashup of, of cuisines growing up in the house. Um, I had dill pickles in the fridge. <laughs> I hated pickles. As a kid, my dad loved olives. I had olives in the fridge. Olives are fermented. Um, and then beyond that, you know, it's, it's the staples, the everyday things that you don't even recognize as being fermented from vinegar to cheese, to bread, to coffee and chocolate. Um, did I ever see my parents ferment anything in the house explicitly? No, but you know what? My mom did have unable to kick her Caribbean roots, an entire cupboard of different hot sauces. So yes, I definitely grew up fermented, spicy scotch bonnets, you know, ghost pepper, like really hot shit. <laughs> we, we could talk about Escovich and Escobesh in, in that same context too, using 
you know, acetic acid to either flavor or preserve something. Mm-hmm. Um, but Renee, I also wonder what similar things or what distinct mm. things were in your pantry yeah. growing up. I mean, my own background is also of a mixed background. My father, an Albanian, um, Muslim, my mother, Danish. Um, so my Danish upbringing, that of course had uh, all the goodies like a pickled herring that Scandinavia is so famous for. Um, and um, pickles too. I mean, the dill pickle, that's a very, very common one to have. Um, I would say if I think back and I truly think to what was the ferment that I enjoyed the best, it has to be bread, actually. It was truly one of the things that I loved being sent to the baker for, particularly in, in uh, when we were in what was Yugoslavia, because it was a bakery uh, that only did one thing, one bread, and you went into the store and the, it was just bread everywhere. And I'd go and buy two breads every morning um, and come back home, they're still warm, and to have a slice of that, it's really a childhood memory. And I still love bread. You cite in the book that, yes, bread is a fermented project, but or product, but it is such an expansive topic that it could merit uh, its own book. Um, though you do have a bread sow in the miso chapter, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of like to touch on um, how there are a lot of cross-cultural yeah. fermentations. <laughs> and I don't just mean Caribbean and Scandinavian, yeah. but that you're using multiple types of fermentation to arrive at a distinct... A finished product. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, um, th- this goes back through the history of Noma uh, long before even I arrived there. But I think a lot of what, um, you know, the very bright chefs that worked in either the Nordic Food Lab or, or the Fermentation Lab in its first iteration uh, knew is that to, to find inspiration, you have to look abroad. You have to look beyond your own borders to understand what other cultures have to offer. And then the beauty of Noma is that it, it, you take that knowledge and then you put it through the lens of Noma's philosophies, which is what grows here, what is seasonal to us, what makes sense for this restaurant in this place at this time. That's always been you know, one of Noma's founding philosophies. Um, and when you do that and you look to Japan and you say, oh, this is how they make me, so, or you look to South Korea and you're like, oh, that's what a meju brick is. And then you just, you're poised with the question, okay, well, what else? can go through that process. And then that's when you start including uh, Nordic inputs, Scandinavian legumes, uh, things that grow in the south of Sweden or, or the Faroe Islands, and then making those Japanese-style ferments in Copenhagen. But what results isn't of Japan and is not of uh, the south of Sweden. It is It is uniquely of Noma because it's only in that place, in that restaurant, where these two ideas could have collided. Or salted capers, because you mention in the book that the nomination fermentation lab kind of began because of a forager bringing back some mm-hmm. buds. Yeah. I mean, it was a forager. He's still one of our foragers today. He's a, a little bit older now. Uh, but good old Roland Rittmann, he's truly a character. Um, and he's very, very persuasive, <laughs> to say the least. He pushes you to buy whatever he wants you to buy. Um and he came with these um, tiny little uh, capo-looking things. I mean, and, um, you know, we, we eat rams or ramsons, as they're called in our part of the world, quite a bit. And we love the flowers. And, but they're, they're, and there's so much of it. It's simply impossible to, to eat everything that's in the season. And so he came with, a, you know, a huge crate of these small little berries. And he also charges an exorbitant amount for his products, by the way. <laughs> And he said, here, you're taking these and you're going to salt them because in the old days, people used to conserve them almost as a as a caper. And we're like, okay. And so we salted them and then we just forgot about them for a while. And uh, first time somebody opened that back and took a bite of that, it was a revelatory moment because these ingredients had transformed from, you know, a, a quite a tart, uh, raw oniony type flavor. Um, to this savory, salty, acidic, fresh, juicy, popping, uh, garlicky, oniony, chive-like sensation. And uh, for that period, it was like a revolution to us in the kitchen. During winter, we could 
put this in our sauces, you know, we could make all these things with this. And to this day, still, it's one of the most popular things for our cooks to, to, to play around with. Uh, forgot about them for how long? And truly, is it intentional that you forgot about them? It's or? completely intentional. You have to imagine, go back to the early days of Noma, where we might be six people in the kitchen, and myself, for the first many, many years, I would do anything, everything. I mean, I would even answer the phone when uh, reservations called. There were no general manager. There were no, like, uh, sous chefs. Uh, I had to run a section. I had to do everything. So sometimes you just forgot about things. I mean, you were too busy doing mise en place. And then when you forget about things, and some, sometimes we've thrown away things that we didn't even taste because we were like, oh, what was that? And then you just throw it away. I don't even know anymore. I can't deal with it. Too busy. <laughs> We're, what, right? You try that sometimes. Um, and it was probably, I can't remember exactly how long, but it could. we could have gotten it up to a year. There's this context of fear that is associated with fermentation because of that forgetfulness mm-hmm. or leaving something aside uh, to just ferment on its own. And you had brought up the word rotting before. Um, how do you change someone's concept or pre-concept of what fermentation is and move it away from rotting into something spectacular? You, you explain the principles and you, you tell people not just what is happening, but why it's happening. You let people know that fermentation was one of the first forms of safe food preservation and that we still do it today, so it must have done something right. It must have served some good to humanity for us to still be in love with it to this day. And we're still here. And we're still here, <laughs> thriving more than ever. Um, yes, I, th- I think that people can absolutely be afraid of the unknown. So it, it, it's really just about communicating, um, like I said, the why of things and, and letting people have a firm grasp on the principles so that they can make their own informed decisions about what is safe and what has gone right or what hasn't. Um, and then go from there. We really go to great lengths in this book to to try and quell people's concerns and let them know what to look out for. Let them know where things can go wrong so that they don't. And from the very early reviews that I've received of this, I, I one of the comments uh, I keep hearing is that it I felt more confident than ever than ever to to try to ferment something myself because things are so well explained. So. That's that's something I did very much on purpose because I knew what it was like to to be like is is this right or isn't it and you don't want other people to feel that way. Yeah, the, the fear of these bad microorganisms um, and there are a multitude, but they're such a minority in the world. Um, you know, people fear more about botulism and E. coli and other pathogens than but rightly so. Yeah, and uh, you do give explanations on how to avoid, but also know that they're there or festering or fostering how to steer away from that Mm -hmm. um i having done a fermentation book of my own i think it's a weird fear because it happens so rarely if you follow certain steps very true yes um and let's start following those steps because the biggest difference between what history has shown us and what you guys can do in this book is that there's open air and there's vacuum packing. There's aerobic and anaerobic or the control of those two things. So historically, were there any anaerobic fermentation environments? Um, or is that something that has been born out of technology? Absolutely. Uh, a, a, a crock of sauerkraut with a, a weight over top made of wood or, or stone, that's an anaerobic environment. So long as you have a water line with all of your vegetable matters submerged beneath it, and that salty brine, even though it's exposed to air, it is, you know, the, the fermenting vegetable product underneath is, is not. Uh, and that's, these are the beauty of ancient techniques is that people happened upon uh, the how of things without knowing why, but then they knew it worked, and then traditions cemented themselves. Um, yeah, so so absolutely. But when you understand these things, then you can look to modern technologies and say, okay, well, how else can I ferment? Can I ferment in a vacuum box? Can I remove the oxygen from uh, an environment in some way? Um, and people do do that today. So it's just the, the technological evolution of fermentation, if anything. 
there is a chapter on how to make your own fermentation lab, and you don't actually have to get a stevedore shipping container no, to do so. No, you don't. But I mean, you can if you want. Yeah. Uh, Heritage Radio is housed in two stevedore <laughs> shipping containers, so you can even get them cheap these days. Yeah, we bought our, our, our cheap. I mean, we basically did the first fermentation bunker. I think it was for twenty three thousand dollars. That's a lot of money, but you have to imagine it's four shipping containers with an equipped kitchen. And the two of these chambers built into fermentation, six fermentation rooms that are temperature and humidity controlled. We did also buy the second cheapest kitchen in Ikea for this. To give us some credit. <laughs> um, that bunker itself, $23,000. I'm, I'm always thinking about numbers and crunching numbers in restaurants. Have you ever quantified the amount of pantry ingredients you've made out of those bunkers and how much it would have cost to buy or manufacture no, those things? No, no. I mean, it would probably be a lot cheaper. You think so? Yeah, to buy things. Are you kidding me? It's much cheaper. I mean, if we just said, okay, we're just going to do misos. Why do our own when we can buy, you know, artisanal-made stuff from Japan? Why? So answer that. Well, because it's it's completely different, and it's a it's a... It's the um, it's like uh, comparing uh, coriander to parsley. You know, they're t- both of them are herbs, but they're s- so very different. And so is it with ferments once you start getting into it. It's not all the same, even though that to some people, they think it is the same, but it isn't. And to us, to have these myriad of variations, it is essential when you're cooking. And I also believe in a home co- kitchen, this is what makes the fun. That slight diversity daily. That's what makes the fun. I mean, you do state that there's no single right way to make any of these, that they all take time. Um, and I always push people to make recipes more than once, not only to, to figure out what they did wrong or what they did right, but that there are these iterations. There are these variations mm-hmm. with, you know, base product as well as time and, and you know, seasonality. Uh, so in that, you're not making a consistent product ever. It's... Well, I mean, no, I guess not because you know one one year the 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 berries taste really good, next year they're more tart, and it's a different time, different uh, so different everything, and and so it's always changing. I guess you can't have the same flavor exactly. That brings on the the hand flavor. Yeah, hand taste. I mean, this is something I I, I wrestle with in the lab uh, on a daily on a daily basis. Um, and I, 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 it, it really deeply impacts me and it makes me think about what I do at work, but I work in a restaurant that strives to be one of the best in the world. And naturally something that counts for a restaurant like that is consistency is things being identical or exact and, and repeatable. Uh, and then here I am a person charged with running some microbes and telling them what to do. <laughs> And hoping that they're going to work for me and 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 play along, but that that is not how nature works. And and um, it's easier to mend if you realize that you are not in control of nature, but you're in this tenuous contract with her. Um, and fermentation has a, a very powerful way of relaying that idea, and that's something I talk about uh, in the book. Um, it was an idea that was introduced to me by two amazing Korean women um, that run a project called Booty Kitchen. Uh, that basically go through the mountains of South Korea, meeting grandmothers who ferment traditionally, getting small batches of that, and then selling them in little pots to get their products into the world. Uh, and they told me about uh, this this Korean, I don't, I don't even know if it's a proverb, but a saying of sonmat, or hand taste, uh, the idea that the person who makes a ferment, especially if it's in of the traditional method, will always impart their own flavor onto the finished product. Now, that's, that's as far as it goes um, in Korea. And, and they would say that something made in a big factory would lack hand taste. But once you start understanding the science of fermentation, once you understand that there's so many myriad inputs that go into a bucket of miso or donjang, and you realize that all of these minute variables will impact the final outcome, the population of bacteria on your hand at the time you started the ferment, the quality of the peas uh, or or, or first ingredients, as, as Renee just mentioned. All of these will change that finished product at the end. So you'll never be able to make the same miso twice. Um, and I 
just reading about all the science, uh, all, all the scientists I adore and, and the history of science, um, I relate this all back to uh, the inception of chaos theory um, by an American scientist named uh, Edward Lorenz and, and how those two things are very closely interlinked. Or Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park, the original. He was also talking about <laughs> Edward Lorenz. He was. Uh, I, I, I love Son Matt. I'm doing a project about bread right now and a whole bunch of Korean bakers keep on bringing that thing up. Um, but then there's also backslopping, um, which is that starter, that mother, that living culture that you begin a ferment with. Does that do that similar thing in that it gives it a distinction, but it really can't control the way it goes? Mm, well, for me, uh, with, with backslopping, I mean, yes, you can kind of continue lineages, but that's really more the point is that all life comes from life. You cannot... You know, a question I see in my Instagram message box a lot is like, oh, I don't have a mother. How do I make kombucha? I'm like, get a mother. <laughs> because you cannot do these things without these things. And even if you are practicing wild back or wild fermentation, those bacteria are just in the environment. And if you change your environment, you will change your finished product. Um, backslopping is a very useful and necessary technique in some instances, but it's more about continuing that unbroken chain of living organisms um, and just finding ones you trust, I suppose. Think of it this way. Everything that is on earth today has been alive in some sense through generation after generation after generation for the exact same amount of time going back 3.75 billion years. So, you know, we're, we're all in it together. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was introduced to Le Creuset Cast Iron Skillets many years ago in my first restaurant, Muggsy's Chow Chow in the East Village. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and the ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. And I love easy cleanup after running my own restaurants in New York for 23 years. Le Creuset Original Heirloom Cookware is backed by a lifetime warranty. Their bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. So of the fermentations in the book, and we'll do a little quick fire on these, uh, which is the oldest? Which is the most contemporary? Uh, in technique or literally like time? Uh, let's do both. Uh, time. There is a rose and shrimp garum that was the first batch of that that we ever tried out in the lab. And that's been on for. Oh, I don't even mean and... just Noma. I mean, oh. historically. Oh, historically. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, yeah. Like I said, wine and vinegars are probably the first. You know, that fallen fruit, if that could be considered wine, then that's that's the that's the one. Um, the technology, if you could call it that, quote unquote, uh, of Koji showed up around uh, kind of the turn of the common era. So kind of around, you know, 100 BC, things like that. Um, before that, I mean, people were definitely fermenting jangs and misos and pastes of soybeans. Um, with salt and meat and things like that uh, a little bit before that. Um, it's kind of hard to say where kombucha fits in because there are these wild organisms, these wild scobies that you can find even in forests of Denmark that kind of do the same thing that are roughly the same collection of microbes. I anthropomorphize those wild scobies in my mind just in the <laughs> middle of the night waking up and harassing children yeah. kind of like, a, what is that, Krampus yeah. that you see in Austria. Um and contemporary ones? Contemporary. I know... Pickles are probably slightly contemporary. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking. You know, lacto, lacto-fermentation, at, at least how you have it laid out in the book, um, ends up being your first fermentation. I don't know whether or not that was just out of... Uh, um, it was intentional. Yeah, and it's why? A, it's a, it, because it's a great and easy starting point. Most people have 
if you have a vegetable in your fridge, odds are you have everything else it takes to lacto ferment something. All you need is a container, a mason jar, let's say. Um, doesn't have to be though, uh, and some salt, the water from your tap if you want to ferment in brine, and then you just let the process uh, take over from there. And it is the quickest. Yeah, things are normally done in about uh, well, technically koji's quicker, but yes, with lacto fermentation, things can be done in under a week. Now, is there any difference between fermenting fruits and vegetables, or is each piece of produce its own product? Each is its own thing, and some things will lacto ferment better than others. Um, fruits have their own characteristic and you end up with this sweet, sour, savory thing. Um, whereas vegetables are, are like up are pleasantly sour just because they have less sugar to fuel the fermentation from the get go. Um, fermenting in brine versus fermenting out of brine, both offer up, uh, their unique qualities. And that's why I included both methods in the book. Um, fermenting in a vacuum bag or, or in a, a cryovac bag, um, versus fermenting in a crock, both, excuse me, those both offer up uh, their pros and cons. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of variability. Uh, and yeah, as we say in the book, there's no one right way to do any of this, but we want to let people understand how so that they can take over for themselves. So you have a bag of fermented plums. Who gets to say what happens with them afterwards? Because I know there are ways of powderizing, of juicing them, putting them in minuette, uh, minuettes. Um, are you making these products with a vision of what the dish is in mind? No. Or do you taste the product and then? No. We always taste the product and then we figure things out. That's, so, that's always the starting point. And, you know, I mean, we've discovered that you might do a, a fermented plum and then that thing can become 10 other things. Like, for instance, uh, one of the big successes we had with fermented plums is to spread uh, the paste thin, like wafer thin, and dry it to a crisp. And then we have that uh, tart, um, sweet, crunchy thing, like a disc. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have raw shrimp on that. You have uh, raw seafood on that. And you just eat it like a, like a flatbread or like a tostada. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely amazing <laughs> because it adds everything that you're looking for. Uh, but in such a different way than in, in comparison to just marinating with citrus, for instance. Um, so, but that came because we played around with the idea of this lactic fermentation. You know, the, the skin from plums, we dry them and turn them into a powder, and they're incredible. I mean, when you have that powdered up and you sprinkle that over ice cream, it's amazing. Or you sprinkle it over raw seafood or over cooked steak. Um, that's also amazing. I mean, you can use these uh, things in, in, in so many different ways. But always, the way that it works is that the test kitchen... Uh, works closely with the fermentation bunker. So those are two different entities, but we work close to each other. In the fermentation lab, they, they have long-term projects. It's more slow. And they sort of fiddle, fiddle with themselves in a way. I mean, they they have free hands more or less. Of course, we're there and we sometimes guide them if they need to, but, but most of the time they just come and say, taste this into the test kitchen. And then in the test kitchen, that's where we work on the day-to-day changes. And every time they bring something that's amazing, it's like we're adding another Lego to the box. Blueberries for breakfast. Well, lacto-fermented blueberries for breakfast. And then turn into a seasoning paste that you rubbed on either like a game meat or uh, maybe even a piece of seafood. I just, thought, I just thought it was so fascinating, uh, that transformation. I mean, the multitude of transformations that you get from a simple blueberry. Mm-hmm. Do they still inherently taste like blueberries? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is that a thread that you try to carry through every fermentation, that the product still has some intrinsic sense of itself? I mean, I mean I'll, I'll let Dave answer as well, but, you know, we haven't made many ferments that, that uh, have a mix of ingredients together in it. We like that they're very clear and pure, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And if you want to cook with them afterwards, you have these basic units, and then you can blend. Um, but yeah, as, as Renee said, it's, it's more about a single idea and then the transformation of that idea into a different version, like adding a new dimension to what a blueberry can be. Oh, I've never tasted blueberries like this. But if you're just to put like a, I mean, not to say that making a medley of fruit and adding seasonings and bay leaves and cinnamon and dry coriander 
would ferment badly. It would be amazing, but it would taste like a finished thing that you would have less control over versus being able to ferment all those things separately and then play with them and, and, and then kind of use them as, as you know, your palette to paint your masterpiece. Um, and it is to me in the lab, very important that the things that we ferment taste of what they are because otherwise, um, it's, it's, it's almost as if it's a muddy idea. If you can't tell what it is, um, something, a, a criticism that Renee often puts forth is that, uh, if you get too carried away, sometimes can taste so much of everything that they taste of nothing. And that's very true. We, we want to use the best quality peas or lentils we can so that the finished fermented product still tastes like that amazing pea or lentil. And one thing that I've learned a lot is that sometimes ferments don't need to go as long as you think they do. You know, people, people romanticize age. Oh, this miso has been on for three years. It's so dark. It's so rich. But that also makes things taste the same as they converge on just an old thing instead of a fresh thing. So fermenting things for less time often keeps that flavor pure while still being able to create the umami, the complexity the depth of flavor that, that fermentation provides. So that's kind of a counterintuitive thing that I've discovered working in the lab. You're not going to get away without talking about vinegar with me because Fair enough. It, it surrounds my life in a way mm-hmm. that my wife is very happy that the 500 bottles that I had are now depleted down to 30. And, yeah, that's, uh, she gets to manageable. take over the wine fridge. But I think of acetic acid in the same way that that can be so overbearing that you can say, oh, I have X or Y vinegar. Um, in, in the case of this book, you have a butternut vinegar. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't taste like butternut. It just tastes like acetic acid. Yeah. So how do you make sure that element doesn't overtake um, you know, whatever product you're making, that end product, that output with? Well, you get to control how much acetic acid is created at the end by the amount of ethanol. Uh, you put it in the beginning. And this is something that winemakers and vinegar makers uh, all around the world do. They, you know, okay, if you're making a fruit vinegar, they test the bricks of the fruit. They make sure it's sweet enough so that the final fermented wine has enough alcohol in it to ferment into vinegar that'll still be balanced and ensure that there's still enough residual sugar to, it's just skillful. Sure, you could write it down in some formula and be like, oh, it's algebra or calculus. But it is just knowing what you're doing. And uh, the recipes provided in the book are the finished versions of things. These, this is, these are things that we've tried in the lab in, in like true empiricists and say, what's it like at 10% ethanol? What's it like at 5%? What's it like at 8, 8%, which is the amount of alcohol we, we suggest uh, you add to your, your juices in the book to get them fermenting? Um, and it's, it's true to the point. A, a lot of the recipes in this in this book have been like 10 years in the making. You know, you look at it, it's on four pages of paper, but that's also been hundreds of man hours of people trying and failing and trying and failing at restaurant Noma until we settled on the recipe that worked for us, which is the ones we published here. I wonder about the black garlic because you're using a methodology that's so inherent of two cities in the world in Italy, you know, Modena and Reggio Emilia. Um, are you using balsamic as a term of what you want it to taste and look like, or are you using traditional methods to carry the black garlic through the process? That, that re- it really does taste of garlic in the end. Mm-hmm. The wine was amazing. The wine itself is worth making. It's incredible. Um, but just the idea of slowly aging something in barrels, letting it reduce, letting, I mean, sure, it's not a balsamic. We're not going to get the DOP stamp for what we're doing. But but again, you look abroad to understand why some of the best tasting ingredients or most famed ingredients in the world of food are what they are. Why are they famous in the first place? What about this technique makes it magical? And then apply that to things that you're doing yourself. And And the black garlic was just a natural... Uh, kind of through line there. Did you develop a new technique by flambéing whiskey for vinegars? Yeah, I think I'd never seen that before. That was interesting. That was that was in preparation for Noma Australia. There's a big culture of of whiskey brewing uh, down there uh, and distilling. And uh, I remember Thomas Friebel at the time, the head of the test kitchen, was like, "Oh, have we ever made vinegar from whiskey?" And I'm like, "No." And then he's like, "Try it out." But naturally, that, that poses some problems because the alcohol would just kill any bacteria straight straight away. 
Uh, and then I, I got the bright idea to be like, oh, well, how could you r- remove the alcohol and retain the taste? And, you know, the flambeing method uh, kind of presented itself. Now, are there other methods in the book that you conceptualize and carry through and that are Noma-specific? I feel like uh, the koji, the turning a mole, or... I mean, there's, there's quite a few of them, I'd say. Um, you roast the koji, you darken it, and then you can make a paste from it that tastes like... Honestly, it tastes like mole <laughs> without the spice. Uh, you can turn that into an ice cream. Um, the lactic, yeah, you're right. The li- I mean, what about the quince syrups? I've never seen that before. Or oh, excuse me, the kombucha syrups. Yeah, true. Yeah. We make a kombucha, and then afterwards you cook it down to a syrup. It's the best tasting syrup you'll ever taste. I can guarantee you that. And I love the applications like caramels, uh, more, you know, I feel like we've done sweets. so many things. You have lacto, kombucha, vinegar, koji, miso, shoyu, garam. These are known terms. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in the realm of fermentation that you think hasn't been explored? I mean, that would be garum? a new term. That, yeah. The What is it? Yeah. The beef and the chicken, roasted yeah. chicken and garam. Yeah. Can you explain why you would ever do something like that? I, <laughs> well, it happens with uh, our uh, German uh, head of uh, the test kitchen at the time. He was the one who suggested it, actually. And were you the one who did it first? The roast chicken wing is amazing. Are you yeah. using chicken wings that, you know, someone eats the chicken wing, throws away the bone, using the whole thing? No, I order chicken Okay. <laughs> Actually, like, order out chicken wings? No, I, I <laughs> order them from the meat supplier. <laughs> um, but that was, where did I get the inspiration for that? I think that's either either Daniel Hem or David Chang that makes a, uh, their stock just from chicken wings just because it's, it's the most flavorful part of the chicken. And I'm like, well, that's totally true. Um, at the same time, I also tested um, a garum from the whole chicken or like breast or thigh, and the chicken wing was far tastier. It's just, I guess, the amount of collagen or the fat to meat ratio or whatever it is, but it just it is incredible. Um, so the whole idea there is that you take chicken wings, you cook them, you roast them as if they were like golden, delicious, and making your smell smell like making your smell making your house smell amazing. Um, then you chop them up, mix them with koji, and then put all that together in a salt brine. And the koji's enzymes will further break down that chicken. All the caramelized bits add this amazing roasted, like a dark ramen broth flavor to it. And then you end up with this complex, umami-rich, super unctuous. Uh, you 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 probably describe it best. And the chicken wing garum. Well, the way I describe it is that um, you have to uh, imagine the best roast chicken you did, and those juices in the bottom of the pan that are kind of cooked in, not syrupy, but not like a broth, just that gooiness. That flavor of those with soy and acidity together. And then there's a few layers more that come from the magic of fermentation. There's an aroma and this certain level of tartness and robustness to it that nothing else gets besides uh, when you make these type of garums. Can you see any of these concoctions in the book? And I don't mean concoctions in the like derogatory sense, but can you see any of them becoming mainstream? Yes. What can you see on the shelves in supermarkets? All of the garums. Maybe the grasshopper <laughs> will be difficult uh, in, in the Western world, but all of the garums, they are so helpful. On, in your da- they will be so helpful in your daily life. Absolutely. In what applications everything except for breakfast uh, unless you like a uh, meat flavor on your yogurt but uh i mean just about anything it doesn't matter if you make a salad and you want a vinaigrette two drops of um of garum and a bit of oil whisked together if you want some acidity in it you do that and then you have a salad dressing if you want to make a sauce you can actually use that dressing for your meat um if you want to make a mayonnaise if you want to make a pasta you uh you know you Crack open an egg, whisk it, thicken it with uh, grated parmesan, put 15 drops of uh, chicken wing or beef caram in there. And then, you know, it's like beefing up your carbonara and you mix that into your uh, hot pasta for a sauce. 
uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, we we have a lot of these suggestions in the book where we try to think of how would we use this in our home. What are you... This is assuming that there is something that you have an aversion to. Um, what is it that you wouldn't eat before? Uh, some ingredient, maybe even some dish, that once it goes through fermentation, it changes in a way that you're able to enjoy it that much more? Or at all? I can't say I, I, I don't have anything I wouldn't eat, but when we first started doing crickets or grasshoppers, we have a grasshopper garum. It was a big taboo for us. I mean, we're not used to eating insects in our part of the world. It's it's considered dirty. Um, so when we first started doing that, that was a big, big one. And now I think it's one of the best things we got in our pantry, the ch- the, the grasshopper garum. Is there anything that you had an aversion from using as a base ingredient? I think mold is freaky. Like, you don't normally see mold growing on food and be like, ooh, that looks amazing. I can't. I, I just want to snack on that. Until you find the molds in this book and they completely change what you think a mold can be. That's, 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 that's kind of one in the broad sense. Yeah. Koji. Yeah. I mean, Koji is a very unexplored world outside of Japan. Um, and you transported a lot of these ideas. You know, lacto-fermentation, vinegar, um, they happen more globally. Are there any other ferments around the world that aren't cited in this book that are so regional and so specific you didn't feel like you could do or didn't have the time to explore? Icelandic fermented shark. That's uh, That's pretty hardcore. That's that's a whole other thing. But yeah. Um but yeah. But that that it is a whole different thing, but it wouldn't work either because you know sharks don't have a bladder, so they pee on the inside. Yeah. And and so that's why it that ammonia flavor as they ferment is so strong. Uh I mean yeah, you have to grow up on that stuff to enjoy it, man. There's <laughs> there's just no Harkerel? way. Is that what it's called? Huh? Harkerel? How do you say? I can't remember in uh, Icelandic. Yeah, how they call it. I, it's one of those foods. Have you had it? Once. Yeah. Have I had the opportunity more than once? Yes, but I've only had it once. Mm. Yeah, it's intense. I know we didn't talk about specific dishes per se. Um, are there specific dishes for some of these fermentation for for some of these fermented recipes, or do you just give suggestions on where to use them throughout the cooking processes? Like you, you're not necessarily saying chicken wing garum um, is only for this. No, dish that we make no, 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 no. I mean, we have a lot of uh, sort of uh, suggestions on how to use things, uh, but we also tell people to keep an open mind that this is just the first entry level uh, to how they uh, get to use the ferments. But basically, most of them can be used in a multitude of ways. I mean. Many of the recipe, many of the recipes we have for each chapter, we could have put many of the other in, uh, ferments from the other chapters in the same. You know, I mean, in many in many cases, the where you use a chicken wing garum, you can also use a uh, a pumpkin vinegar. I think the last of two questions is uh, from a visual sense, David. You mentioned mold, and that is such a visual taboo for a lot of people to eat, but. What are other sensory or synesthesia things that people should be aware of when fermenting? Uh, the goods and the bads of smells, of sounds. Yeah. Um, it, so, I mean, the good and the bad of, of smells and sounds and tastes, uh, your senses have evolved through history to, to allow you to understand the world, to, allow, to, to guide you through it. Um, it's, it's the best, you know, kind of, uh, it's, it's your first line of self-preservation, your senses. Uh, and, and the crucial question in, in the natural world as an organism is, uh, approach or avoid. And your senses are, are literally your, your inputs and outputs into the world to, to figure that out. Your sense of taste is probably the best thing. Um, just take a, 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 a drop on your tongue. It won't be enough to kill you. Um, if it is bad, but it will definitely be enough to tell you if it is bad. Um, I talk a lot in the book about uh, watching out for different colored molds. Like if you didn't put that color of mold in there yourself, 
well then that's your answer um and just to just to to pay heat because the processes of fermentation if they go right make food more delicious not less delicious so if if you do find something going awry and it's like oh this this tastes worse than when it started then you can bet that something's off so just just always keep that in mind i have to tell you about the tomato water vinegar that i made i mean it was the worst thing i've ever made food wise oh really yeah um the mother got so large because i get the lycophene it's an aggregate of cellulose okay so the mother grew to about four inches then it went indole everything underneath it smelled like shit and farts yeah but we were like oh it's eventually going to turn a corner nothing no. turns a corner from no, that no 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 it's it's not good. yeah so what is the worst thing you made what is the point or furthest point you got on a ferment and decided i don't think this is working out and you have to pitch it the worst thing we've made blood garum don't don't try and ferment pig's blood it doesn't it doesn't work the way you think you might get smart you might get into the science of things and end up on some university websites you know library of papers and be like, oh blood's full of protein just like you know a slurry of beef and water in the beef garum recipe it doesn't it doesn't work don't try it but is it something that you're continually trying to figure out why it didn't I work have, yes and it still doesn't work <laughs> it still doesn't work i mean are there any things not in the book that you're working on and you haven't cracked the code of yet absolutely things that are in the book no everything in the book is tested but there are things I mention in the book that I, I consider my unicorns. And what are those? There's a mold in there called Manascus purpurus, which is a red cousin of koji that uh, ancient Chinese cooks used to dye char siu. Nowadays, it's made with red dye number three, but this mold uh, produces all the same enzymes as koji and is like neon red. And I've yet to be able to grow it. It's gone to gene banks. It just doesn't... It, it's hard to master. So... Yeah, one day. Any last elevator pitch on why fermentation, why now? We published this book because to us, it's the uh, uh, it's our bloodline. And um, I believe so much in it. I believe this will transform people's daily lives once they get really into this properly. It is ma It is a way to make cooking delicious, more delicious, and actually easier. And they don't have to start by doing our ferments. Just start getting comfortable with the fermentations that are already available at supermarkets. Excellent. Anything else, David? Mr. Silver? Stay curious. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. A big thank you to our sponsors, Le Creuset, Music by Cookies, and Matt Patterson for engineering. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.